The Inside the Boards podcast and this message is brought to you by Osmosis, the personalized learning platform that manages med school for you. It's been called the Netflix of medical education and is the only system that analyzes your coursework and intelligently recommends personalized quizzes, mnemonics, videos, and a whole bunch of other content. Thanks to Osmosis for providing questions via their Open Osmosis platform for the Inside the Board's All Audio QBank, the first and second year versions, which you can hear more about later in the show. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. I am Patrick Beeman, your host. Today's episode, we are continuing with our theme of showcasing our all audio QBank. Today's questions are covering psychiatry slash behavioral sciences, uh, mostly first and second year type level content, uh, but also relevant for third years or those interested in um, psychiatry in general. The response to the audio cue bank has been great. Certainly, I will say thank you so much to everybody who has expressed interest and helped support us in this early stage. By the time this whole thing is completed there will be about 500 questions in the first and second year version and 500 questions in the third year slash clerkship step two version third year if you haven't heard is sponsored by online meded dustin williams i and a few others are optimizing online meded's multiple choice questions for audio consumption And the first and second year version contains content provided by Osmosis, which you can check out at osmosis.org. We are also optimizing those questions for audio consumption. You can listen to an earlier version of our podcast, which has an intro and overview of the audio cue bank if you want to learn more, or simply go to insidetheboards.com slash cuebank. As always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support and happy studying. We'll be bringing you every week or two uh, some more examples from our All Audio QBank. And for our podcast listeners, you can get an extra 15% off the launch price of the QBank by using the code PODCAST at checkout. That gets you a year's access to the content and all the updates that we'll be adding throughout the year and finishing up by roughly May of 2018 for just around $67. And before we go into the content, the questions for this particular episode, I would like to point you to um, another podcast, a friend of mine, uh, Taylor Brana, The Happy Doc. The Happy Doc podcast is an excellent resource for medical students and practicing doctors, residents, attendings or otherwise. And this most recent episode features Alex, who has been helping us with the production of the Audio Cube Bank, offering med school reflections and advice. You should definitely check out the Happy Doc podcast. There's some great episodes in there on test anxiety and reclaiming your passion in medicine, 
on being an intern, all kinds of practical advice on how to do medicine and do life well at the Happy Doc Podcast. Welcome back to the Inside the Board's All Audio Question Bank for the preclinical years. So we will go ahead and get started on our psychiatry questions. First question. A 35-year-old man comes to the office for a follow-up appointment. He tells you that he is doing well, except that he seems to be spending most of his time organizing various things around his house. He states that in the last week, he has organized his bookshelf, his kitchen, and has color-coded his wardrobe. He enjoys doing these tasks, but states that there seems to be no end to his organizing. He states he has always been this way, and that when his possessions are not organized, he gets very frustrated. His symptoms have affected his ability to maintain relationships with his family and friends. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? And the answer choices are A, generalized anxiety disorder, B, normal behavior, C, obsessive compulsive disorder, or D, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. So the correct answer is D, obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Now, the patient in the stem has a personality disorder, and we know that because the pattern of behavior is negatively affecting his life, which is exemplified with the mention of the negative impact on his relationships. He's exhibiting obsessive tendencies, which would make us think of both OCD and OCPD. However, because these tendencies are things that the patient seems to be relatively okay with doing, in fact, he kind of mentions that he likes them, we pick OCPD. You may have been tempted to pick OCD, and a lot of people will use that term in kind of layman's terms colloquially to describe people who are very particular or organized or like to have things a certain way. However, Obsessive-compulsive disorder is distinctly different, and one of the easiest ways to tell the difference on the exam is to look for patients to have some sort of shame, insight, dislike of the obsessions that they're doing. And we usually have a pattern of more strong compulsion type behavior. So big thing that you want to look for in differentiating OCPD versus OCD for the purposes of like step one is to see if the patient has insight. If the patient seems to think that the things that they're doing are totally ridiculous, but they just can't stop doing them, then you want to think of OCD. If they think that the things that they're doing are actually good, they enjoy doing them, they think everything should be neat and organized, and that's just the way things should be, think more about OCPD. This isn't going to hold exactly true for diagnosis in real life, but it's kind of one of those times where that's how the board's going to test you. The board's insider secret for answering this type of question is to remember to always be thinking of a personality disorder if we show that there is significant impact on the patient's life functioning well-being. Personality traits, then, would be things that people exhibit that resemble characteristics of personality disorders, but don't actually have a drastically negative effect on the patient's life or ability to function. Next question. A 21-year-old woman comes to the emergency department after she was sexually assaulted the previous night. She was jogging in a park near her apartment when she was abducted by a man wearing a mask. She reports vaginal penetration without the use of a condom. She was so mentally shaken by the event that she went directly home after she escaped rather than coming to the hospital. She has taken a shower and changed her clothes since the incident. Medical history is non-contributory and she is not currently taking any medications. She is a college student who drinks five to six alcoholic beverages on the weekends and has no smoking history. Physical examination is unremarkable. Pelvic examination shows several vaginal lacerations. Which of the following is the best next step in management of this patient? A, antibiotic prophylaxis for possible chlamydia trachoma disinfection. B, offer a forensic evaluation. 
C, perform an immediate psychiatric evaluation, or D, prophylaxis for HIV? And the correct answer is B, offer a forensic evaluation. Remember that in cases of sexual assault, a forensic evaluation should always be offered within 72 hours of the assault, whether the victim is showered or not. Remember, a chaperone should be present for this examination. The Boards Insider tip for answering this type of question is to ask yourself what the question writers might be trying to make sure you know. Obviously, prophylaxis for STIs is in more than one answer choice and all seem reasonable. So we look at what the question is actually asking and see that this is a next appropriate step in management question. What is more likely to be first, prescribing an intervention or performing an examination? In general, if you are completely lost, you will get more questions right choosing to perform an exam first. Next question. A 45-year-old man comes to the emergency department for evaluation after a car accident. Past medical history is significant for hep C, cirrhosis, and alcoholism. Vital signs are within normal limits. Physical examination shows an uncooperative, intoxicated male with slurred speech. He's found to have a laceration to the liver and is admitted for immediate surgery. 24 hours after surgery, repeat vital signs are significant for a heart rate of 130, respirations of 20, blood pressure of 180 over 100, and oxygen saturation of 94% on room air. Which of the following is the most appropriate pharmacotherapy? A, benztropine, B, haloperidol, C, lactulose, or D, lorazepam? And the correct answer is, of course, choice D, lorazepam. Alcohol withdrawal syndrome is treated primarily with benzodiazepines like lorazepam, diazepam, and the one with a really long half-life, chlordiazepoxide. A banana bag, so to speak, of thiamine, folic acid, and multivitamins is often co-administered to prevent additional complications. Insomnia, autonomic symptoms, increased hand tremors, nausea, and or vomiting, psychomotor agitation, anxiety, seizures, auditory, visual, or tactile hallucinations can also happen. Vitamins such as thiamine and folic acid will treat the nutrient deficiency and prevent additional complications like anemia and Wernicke encephalopathy. A banana bag of these things is often administered intravenously in case of this nutrient deficiency. The other important part to remember from this question is that as far as the peak incidence of withdrawal for alcohol use, you want to be thinking about a patient who spend about a day, maybe a little longer, in the hospital following a surgery or something like that, sometimes seen after a very benign surgery, like an appendectomy, patient is suddenly in an environment where they cannot obtain alcohol, where they're not going to be drinking alcohol regularly like they would be doing outside of the hospital. And so right around the 24-hour to 48-hour mark, they're going to have a lot of alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Watch out for signs of seizure or altered mental status, shakiness, and then of course high blood pressure, tachycardia that we see in this picture. Next question. A 28-year-old woman with history of bipolar disorder is brought to the ED for an acute episode of mania. She has not slept in three days. She falsely believes she is a famous movie director and has rambling, pressured speech. She has a positive pregnancy test and says that she's surprised to find out that she's pregnant because she hasn't missed her period. Which of the following is the best medical management for her acute manic episode? A. Haloperidol, B. Lamotrigine, C. Lithium, or D. Valproate? And the correct answer is A, haloperidol. Haloperidol is the drug of choice for acute mania and pregnancy. Why is this? Because in the first trimester, haloperidol is going to be the one with the least risk of side effects. Remember, lamotrigine is used for maintenance therapy in all three of the trimesters, but is really not good in an acute manic episode. The other choices we have, lithium and valproate, are known teratogens. 
Remember for lithium, we have Epstein's abnormality as far as what you need to know for the boards and renal problems in the developing fetus. And of course, valproic acid and carbamazepine, we need to think about CNS defects. We have a patient who's on valproic acid. Think about supplementing with folate and preventing those neural tube defects potentially. However, haloperidol, much safer. The Boards Insider tip is that some questions will require you to think in multiple systems. Remember, the most important time for the teratogenic effects to occur from medications is usually in the first trimester with organogenesis. And for psych questions, don't undertreat pregnant patients. Next question. A 30-year-old Caucasian male with no significant past medical history is brought to the emergency department by the police for apparent substance intoxication. His temperature is 38 degrees Celsius, pulse is 110, respirations are 16, and blood pressure is 155 over 80. Physical examination shows a euphoric and diaphoretic male with dilated pupils. An ECG is obtained and shows tachycardia with normal sinus rhythm. If the patient were to begin to withdraw from the substance he has abused, which of the following symptoms might you expect to be present? A, increased appetite. B, increased sympathetic stimulation. C, rhinorrhea, or D, seizures? And the correct answer is A, increased appetite. What would he be withdrawing from? Cocaine. So we have a patient with a high temperature, slightly high temperature, rapid pulse, elevated respirations, it's diaphoretic, pupils are big, he's euphoric and tachycardic with a normal sinus rhythm. We're going to be thinking about the stimulant cocaine. Remember that cocaine withdrawal causes vivid and unpleasant dreams, insomnia or hypersomnia, anger, increased appetite, and psychomotor retardation or agitation. Cocaine, by virtue of its mechanism of action, is a stimulator of the sympathetic nervous system, so we're not going to see increased sympathetic stimulation with withdrawal from cocaine. Cocaine inhibits dopamine reuptake. Cocaine intoxication leads to an increased sympathetic response characterized by tachycardia, nausea, dilated pupils, weight loss, and diaphoresis. Opiates are agonists of opiate receptors. As patients withdraw from an opioid intoxication, they may experience dysphoria, lacrimation, rhinorrhea, weakness, diaphoresis, piloerection, myalgias, nausea, and vomiting. Note that opioid withdrawal symptoms are not life-threatening. Patients who are chronic alcoholics then or benzodiazepine abusers can experience seizures as they withdraw. This can lead to a life-threatening condition known as delirium tremens. Delirium tremens is characterized by altered mental status and seizures. Treatment is with benzodiazepines. Boards Insider tip for this is that for most things, withdrawal symptoms as the opposite of the intoxication symptom. So grouping the stimulants and sedatives into two mental categories while you study is a technique to help you remember the effects of intoxication and withdrawal for both. Intoxication with a sedative looks a lot like withdrawal from a stimulant and vice versa. Then as you study, anywhere this is not intuitive is the only thing you have to remember. For example, alcohol withdrawal causes anxiety, which makes sense since stimulants cause anxiety in the acute setting, in intoxication. Tachycardia and hypertension are also seen in alcohol withdrawal, which makes sense because stimulants cause this in intoxication with stimulants. Hallucinations, stimulants cause this in intoxication, and seizures which stimulants don't cause. So, well, not often anyway. So you memorize this fact that alcohol withdrawal can cause seizures because this is kind of a thing that's more different. Then while reviewing, you say to yourself, okay, alcohol withdrawal looks like stimulant intoxication plus can cause seizures. 
then voila, you have just narrowed down the things you need to actually memorize as new information. Remember, grouping like syndromes and studying their differences is an important way to consolidate the amount you have to memorize. You also should know the receptors that are different among the sedatives and stimulants. This does not imply that the receptors are the same. All right, so there you have it. There's an example from the psychiatry set within our All Audio Cue Bank, the first and second year version, which is sponsored by and content thanks to Osmosis. Check out open.osmosis.org. There is a cue bank there with 5,000 multiple choice questions, which is free. The Inside the Boards podcast and our all audio cue bank um, have have been great and we are loving doing this, but I'll be honest, it is a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. We would love if you would want to help us. If you have ideas about how we can improve as a platform, how we can improve this podcast, how we can improve our all audio cue bank, we want to hear from you. So if you've got some web development skills, if you would like to edit some audio or perhaps even record some of the audio questions for our cue bank, If you want to help spread the word about the podcast by helping us manage our social media accounts, or if you just have some creative talent and want to make use of it in a way that uh, helps, in a way that is integrated with your medical education, and you've got some designs or other ideas, help us make some cool videos or whatnot, please send me an email to info at insidetheboards.com. I'd be happy to speak with you about any of our particular needs or about the ideas that you have. Inside the Boards, we really want to be your resource. We want it to be the go-to resource for medical students and residents studying for their board exams and going through the whole medical education process. But we want the content, we want what we offer to be exactly what you guys need in your daily life. So please consider joining our team. We would love to have you. As always, thanks for listening and happy studying. And thanks to Sam and Alex from Magic Man for letting us use the track Out of Mind from their 2014 album Before the Waves as bump music for this podcast, for this episode. You should check them out at magicmanmusic.com if you, like me, uh, like to rock some tracks when you're uh, studying And stay tuned to the Inside the Boards podcast. Next time, we'll be featuring more questions from our all-audio cue bank. Thanks to Osmosis and Online MedEd.